Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! Hey everyone, we're back at The Ready State, and today we're talking to Dr. Kate Shanahan, who frankly wrote a book last year that dominated the way we eat and the way we think about nutrition. Now, if we're talking about first principles, and Juliet will get into the book in a second, um, what's amazing about Dr. Kate Shanahan's well-researched book is that it turns out that it is fundamentally about eating the way human beings are supposed to, and it, it's, it's changed everything for us. I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Kate today. She wrote my single favorite nutrition book I have ever read called Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. In this book, she basically does this extensive study of traditional diets and comes up with what she calls the four pillars that every traditional diet has in common and and what basically makes up the healthiest diets in the world. And I'm not going to spoiler what those four pillars are because we'll talk about that extensively in the episodes. But I can tell you that this book was so influential that I actually now try to eat OFL on a maybe weekly basis. As in the back, we met Dr. Kate Shanahan through our work with the Lakers. And she was spending time helping the sort of high-level sports teams wrap their heads around this big problem. How do we fuel nutrition and play the long game? And I would be remiss in not mentioning that Dr. Kate is a board-certified family physician. She still has a thriving practice where she sees patients and consults them on all things related to their health, but as a specialist in nutrition. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. One of our mutual friends is a, is a strength and conditioning coach at the Lakers named Tim DeFrancesco. When we were down there working with him and hanging out there with the facility, we saw this extraordinary infographic on a fridge for players. It just simply said, sugar maybe is not great for your tendons and ligaments and joint surfaces. And by the way, here are all the choices of the beverages you can drink. And by the way, here are how many teaspoons of sugar and all those things. And, and you just let like Kobe, which I really appreciate, you give Kobe Bryant a chance to be an adult. Like you're like, you can reach for the water. <laughs> Or you can reach for the orange juice. And we're not saying don't reach for the orange juice, but just understand that, understand that orange that juice means, yeah. has, some, has some maybe some implications on the tissue health and what's going on with your gut. And that was the first time we became what we call Kate Shanahan aware. That was the inflection point, right? With the, the singularity where we began to understand, hey, what is going on? Because this is so simple and so profound. Who is this person? Fast forward a little longer, and we have fallen in love with your writing, thinking, and philosophy called Deep Nutrition. Now, look, we're not shilling a book about nutrition, and neither are you, because this is really not about a specific diet, a thing, way of eating. This is saying the first time we've ever seen for us the really the, the nexus of genetics, epigenetics, sort of ancestral best practice and cultural traditions all wrapped up with sort of current science and our understanding. And, and I don't think I have seen another book in any field that is doing this as well. So it's blown our mind. It's changed our own lives. And we just wanted to say welcome to uh, Ready State, Dr. Kate Shanahan. Welcome, Kate. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for bringing me on. You guys are uh, rock stars. I'm really thrilled to be with, with you. And, you know, if I could just add to what Kelly said, you know, I have read um, hundreds of books, I would say, about nutrition and diet and you name it. And, you know, for some reason, this book really has been the most meaningful to me. Um, and I think I'll start by saying it. part of the reason I love it so much, and maybe this is because my background is as a lawyer, but I love how science and research based it is. 
and that I think really spoke to me. Um, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your story and how you came to write Deep Nutrition? Because this is important. The origin yeah. story, yeah, your the origin, origin story, story I think, is, is really important, especially I come from a long line of physicians and they do not think the way you think. I'll just be frank. In fact, every physician I've run across typically doesn't have training in this area and doesn't think the way you think. Well, you know, it's it's often, um, my dad doesn't really think this way either, but my mom does, right? She's not a doctor, she's a gardener. <laughs> and, and farmers and gardeners tend to kind of think this way, and this is a holistic approach. But I, I didn't, you know, um, I, 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 I guess it, I came into it primarily because I had recurring sports injuries as an athlete in high school. And um, I went into um, Cornell's program for genetics back in 1988 because I had this naive idea that I would be able to take a tissue sample and analyze my DNA and figure out somehow that uh, I was missing something in my connective tissue and be able to create a genetic vaccine. So that was um, just a little ambitious. <laughs> so as soon as I figured that out, I left Cornell and I went to medical school because I was like, well, at least I could do sports medicine because I've already um, experienced probably 50% of the sports medicine injury. So that gave me a leg up there. Um, and you know, I was throughout my whole athletic career as a runner, I was always doing, you know, adding more stretches and more strengthening exercises to like deal with the different issues and inserts and stuff like this. So I was always fascinated with like, what is wrong with me and my body compared to all these other people that don't have to deal with this and are just like out of the box, <laughs> ready to go and like supple leopards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, uh, so it wasn't until th that, uh, you know, of course in medical school, we don't learn anything along those directions. I didn't know that either. So boy, I was naive about two different streams of potential learning and, uh, kind of came out of medical school having been given up on the idea of really ever doing that dream. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I was in Hawaii where I noticed that there were patients who were 55, 65 years old that were physically active at their jobs and it, it just like didn't phase them and they didn't have like recurring injuries the way I had run into people who were so physically active in on the mainland um, having you know just repetitive motion injuries these folks didn't and not only that they would go home and they would exercise and they would garden and they would cook for their whole families and they were healthier than their own children and grandchildren so I, I realized something really profound was going on because it wasn't gen it wasn't just genetic if their children had lost that. Um, and I started uh, just like paying attention to what they were telling me about what they would cook because they were all like enthusiastic about cooking and they would just anytime I asked about it, boom, I would be I would get behind by 10 more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we would be talking about it for a while. And it occurred to me that there was this um, no coincidence, it couldn't be a coincidence that the folks that were into gardening and into their traditional food and into weir making weird foods, from my perspective as an American, um, uh, it seemed weird that they would be eating like uh, goat leg, uh, really, and the you know, cow head and pig blood and, you know, every part of the animals and making all kinds of stews and sauces. And, um, you know, I didn't learn anything about that, didn't know anything about that. Nobody, you know, in America, um, that on the mainland, I mean, <laughs> was talking about that, except this family of runners that I went to high school with, and the mom was always in the kitchen doing some, 
you know, they were Irish, so they were always doing Irish do's and Irish, you know, things. And I was like, this is, now I'm starting to see a little bit of a clue as to what could be going on here. So that was the beginning of, of how I, um, how I started thinking about food as a solution. But the, the only reason that I actually really did do that was because I got injured so badly that I could not even like do anything. I couldn't even walk. And um, so I had all this time where I had been biking around the island of Kauai and running and swimming and doing fun things where I was had nothing to do. So I um, started looking into nutrition because my husband, Luke, who's the co-writer and responsible for a lot of the infographics at the Lakers, um, he said, you eat like an insect, you know, you eat so much sugar that can't be right. And um, as a sugar addict, I had, I was sure that he was wrong. Um, but I did read. Yeah, right. Of course he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I did anyhow read a book that he brought back for me called Spontaneous Healing by, by Andrew Weil, which was my first introduction to the world of fats and the fact that there are different um, biochemical properties of different fats. He brought up omega-3 fats, which everyone knows about now, but back then I, I had never heard of them and I was pretty fresh out of medical school and I really was upset that I did not learn about these things because they seem important and I liked biochemistry and it was biochemistry. So I bought uh, like three books on the subject of fats, uh, textbooks and, and read them and I realized that all the nutrition I had learned in medical school was wrong and started just working from scratch in a sense. It's, it's extraordinary. You know, one of the things that we're always struggling for is sort of the duality that human beings are unique, that we are, we are slightly different genetically. We have, we have different ancestral heritabilities. Um, our environment has shaped us a certain way. Our gut biome is all unique, right? Yet we're always, for Juliet and I, we're always saying, well, there are some while there is uniqueness, there are first and foremost always primary principles. And one of the things that really strikes me about your book that I think I appreciate in, in your approach is that you don't romanticize, you know, Paleolithic eating, you know, for lack of a better word, or or our ancestral. It's not like, well, if we could just go back to eating fermented hornet's nest soup, everything would be okay. But what I really appreciate is that it's you know, we always are trying to remind people that induction is really the, 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 that is the story of the scientific method is looking at large data sets, looking at large patterns and trying to derive best practices and pattern recognition out of those. And it seems to me that what you're finding or when I read this, that the science also supports and conjoins beautifully with the fact that there are practices across all eating traditions, except for our very sort of Western and modern and new and errant eating traditions, right? McDonald's aside, that, that you just alluded to, eating the whole animal, you know, that, you know, and then when I, when I read books like, you know, um, you know, Sapiens and, and you you start to kind of go down the rabbit hole of, you know, Liebenson's book, The Story of the Human Body, you think, oh, well, human beings evolved to, you know, hands and tools so we could crack the bone marrow. And, and all of a sudden, there seems to me that there are these patterns that emerge that are universal in and still cover us in our uniqueness. Am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. Like in, in terms of um, the uniqueness, like what I, uh, uh, what I've come to understand about the different effects that the different health problems people can develop from following the standard American diet is that um, 
you know, you that's where the uniqueness really, really uh, becomes obvious, more obvious, because when we eat healthy, we are universally free of diabetes. We don't get cancer. We don't get Alzheimer's. We don't uh, have all these infections. We are, you know, we are much more physically active. Our weight is more ideal. Um, you know, we have a lot more in common <laughs> when we all eat, when we all are healthy and when, and that's because we eat healthy. But when we eat the standard America diet, we start to, we're, what we're essentially doing is we're signing up for a, um, an all you can experience buffet of disease. Now, you don't know exactly which disease you're going to get. Um, when you sign up to this buffet, but it, guaranteed you're going to get something because if you stick with the if, <laughs> at this buffet table long enough, the standard American buffet, you're, you might get diabetes, you might get a heart attack, you might get a stroke, you might get cancer. And we can get some clues from our genetics about which one of those diseases you might end up with. But um, it, that that's kind of like the genetic uniqueness that we each have. But but um, you know, you know, there's something bad going to happen. You just you can't predict what it is. So it's a, it's a lot easier to um, to start with this baseline of well, okay, let's let's try to get back to health and then resolve your problems. Um, and because that is where we all have this common dietary paradigm, and that's the four pillars of. Well, we call them the four pillars of the human diet and, and deep nutrition. Um, and those are the things that all cultures everywhere did. So it's, it's not like necessarily a list of foods. It's really just the four strategies that people followed everywhere. Will you tell us what those four strategies are? I would be delighted to. <laughs> fresh food, fermented and sprouted food, meat on the bone, and organ meats. So fresh food, uh, they, all have, they all have different benefits, you know, a lot of benefits. But... Um, there's a standout benefit for each one. So fresh food is really about antioxidants and fermented and sprouted food is really about gut health and the immune system health because the immune system begins in the gut. Um, meat on the bone is really about connective tissue health. So joint health. And that's like chicken stock and beef stock and organ meats. Those are powerhouses of vitamins and minerals. So, that's what that's that's what that pillar is all about. Um, and um, because in America, m most Americans don't get any if they're lucky, they get one of those pillars. And that's the fresh food when they have a salad or something like that. Even, you know, dairy products aren't fresh. Um, and a lot of nuts aren't fresh because the dairy products have been pasteurized and nuts have been irradiated. And so, you know, it's really hard to get actual food anymore. So it's just so important that you understand what we need and so that you can focus on, okay, well, I like vegetables, but I like them roasted, but vegetables are really a, a, a great source of antioxidants. So we have to pay attention to how the, how does the cooking method maybe damage those antioxidants. So I recommend that if you, you know, are kind of trying to recover from your standard American diet, uh, for the first six months to a year, you really want to get a lot of fresh vegetables, um, more so than roasted even. You know what I thought was so interesting is you said as part of the standard American diet, one of the things you said is that most Americans eat what, like five total 
different kinds of vegetables. And really the ideal is like 25 or even 35. And so it's been interesting for Kelly and I to pay attention actually in terms of how we shop, because, you know, even we get stuck in these patterns of making like the same seven things with the same vegetables. And so, you know, tell us a little bit why the diversity of food is so important. Yeah, so each uh, dietitians actually I agree with them on this. They say like you know that you want to eat a rainbow, right? You want to eat a rainbow of vegetables because each different color has a different nutritional profile. They might have different vitamins, different antioxidants, um, and uh, that is absolutely true. But it doesn't end at the vegetable world. It also uh, is true of of animals. So it's good to have fish, different kinds of fish, shellfish, um, mollusks, whatever those are. Yeah, ocean fish and um, not non-ocean fish and, uh, you know, different kinds of poultry and uh, different cuts of meat and different, you know, ungulates uh, and, and even different cheeses from different animals. So and then, of course, we get to the, the organ meats, which is in this country it is seen as like a bizarre food right there's a, in fact there's a tv show called bizarre foods where the guy basically just eats organ meats <laughs> and um and that's how far we've come and the same principle of eating the rainbow and different um, nutritional profiles that applies to vegetables applies to all the organ meats as well so you know, liver is a great source of um, some minerals that are good for your bone marrow and your immune system, like B vitamins and um, uh, omega-3 fats. And bone marrow is actually a source of fairly unique fatty acids that are good for your immune system. Um, and so those are two organ meats that aren't too strange. You know, if you like liver wor liver worst, right, you can get some really actually very tasty liver worst from um U.S. wellness meats, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just plugging them for, because they're good. Uh, they, <laughs> they don't give me any discounts or anything, uh, but it's good stuff. The, the, they've got Braunschweiger and liverwurst, and it's actually good. It's not just like good for liver. <laughs> um, and so the, to go out of your way and get those kinds of things um, is really important because if you're just having, so say you're, you think you're an omnivore because you eat meat. Um, if you just eat the muscle, you're missing out on a lot of other nutrients that are in the other parts of the animal. And it's, it certainly is important to get plenty of protein from the muscle, but there's a lot of other nutrients that um, it's just, it's good to explore. And if, if you don't really love organ meats, sort of a, um, a substitute kind of is um, the egg yolks from egg, uh, from pastured chickens, because they have a similar-ish profile to some organ meats. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we definitely have we are we thinking it like what we call peak bone broth right now like you know like there are people in in brooklyn with leather aprons and beards and making bone broth you know boiling chickens down because it's everywhere and ubiquitous but you know juliet and i have really said okay these principles don't feel like it doesn't feel like a stretch to say hey look this is what my grandparents were eating and this is what every culture leads and, and we've enough traveling to recognize the truth of sort of these pillars and what is interesting is that we have struggled to eat more kinds of vegetables, you know, and, and I think we're, we're lucky in that we live in Northern California and, but also as our family to try to ingest more offal, you know, and make that whole animal eat. I mean, Juliet has like, it's been hard for me. I grew up in Europe and <laughs> love myself some pate and have no problem putting down the pate. And Juliet is like, this is, I'm not, I don't think I can do this. 
And, you know, she has to like psych herself out. And I'm like, you're psyching yourself out for a delicacy girl. So, you know, but what we have fundamentally, it was easy to make little changes like cooking chicken on the bone. You know, I think we really fell into this. We have this like sashimi grade chicken breast and realized that we were missing so many aspects of the chicken skin and the connective tissue. And, and you know, and, and what we've seen is with emergent part of the, the, fitnessing wellness field people are selling us collagen to add back in when i can just be eating collagen regularly yes i know and you know what people are injecting it <laughs> um yeah like uh you this is so many people say okay if they want to argue if they're uh, like in that kind of coming from all right where's your evidence right like that makes them smart to say uh where's your evidence where's um, the R where's the rct that people are supposed yeah, to right actual food actually food they usually say that without reading the book so we do have citations in the book but what i'm citing is actually research that's done on the individual components of the bone broth like hyaluronic acid which if you're into beauty products, you know is a common ingredient now. It's in a lot of the more expensive beauty products. Well, hyaluronic acid is one of the compounds that you get when you boil bones and the joint in the skin to make bone stock. It's just one. You, they're also injecting um, hyaluronans, um, similar, into the knees of uh, little old ladies and little old men with osteoporosis. Uh, osteoarthritis so they they basically they just take chicken um those red things on the roosters what are they called the comb the, yeah the comb oh, yeah <laughs> and um they take those and turn them into a pharmaceutical product and charge uh thousands of dollars an ounce and it you know so that specialists can inject them into your knees and and it, it does actually work right for those people that can handle the injection and not get an inflammatory reaction it does actually work but you can also just make bone stock and glucosamine um that does actually work a little bit and same thing they're 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 taking massive piles of um car cartilage from animals and refining it down and extracting one of the compounds that you get when you make bone stock and you know there's evidence there that that works too and i could go on there's other other things that have been studied um but it, you know it's it's working and <laughs> it's just working in a pharmaceutical way rather than a culinary way right so if and and it's the tradition is behind the culinary way that all these things help to keep your skin healthy your joints healthy all your connective tissue and by the way your gut is made out of collagen so the the backbone or the 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 stuff that everything when your paris when your gut is peristalsing it's muscle but it this the stuff that gives it structure is collagen or cartilage um and so that when you eat this bone stock that has these this ability to keep your cartilage and your collagen healthy you are actually helping your gut health in in that sense as well it's also got compounds in there that are good for the microbiome and that uh, provide energy for the gut so it's it's a uh, you know there's a reason that this thing is so popular everyone says it's a fad and uses that as a way to dismiss it as though it can't possibly be worthwhile but it's it's a it's popular because it's working. It's not popular because some nerds like me are talking about long words like glycosamine and glycans and telling you you got to spend hours in the kitchen cooking. 
<laughs> that, yeah. that, that Dealey bobbers are popular. They, they were a fad because you just pay $2 and you stick them on your head and now you're doing what everyone else is doing. That's a fad. That's but, a fad. Oh, yeah, you know, one of the things I liked about your book was that you not only were researching this, you were applying it to yourself and seeing these amazing results in terms of your own injury resolution, but then you were also running a medical practice and applying this to your clients with great benefit. Yeah, I think, I think this is an important point. Sometimes in our work, because we work on the injury side and we also work on the performance side, it looks like we're seeing around a corner you know, but it just, we've just happened to stand on both sides of the wall. And what's really interesting is that, you know, one of the, one of the tenets of our model is that it has to be true across populations. It has to be true across cohorts. And that means it needs to explain phenomena on children and adults and, and, and all the way through a lifespan. And one of the things that's really great about your book is that you're saying, Hey, look, here is a model that explains some of the dysfunction in our eating traditions and 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 supports it but also you've been able to scale that right up and not talk about disease but to talk about performance you know your applications of working with multiple professional teams that are very high profile you have fundamentally altered how they approach food as a performance enhancing drug really and and what i think that's really compelling that you're at the top of the you know the top of the game in terms of elite performance and also you're addressing the sickness and the the prescription is the same Yes, absolutely. Right. Nature likes to keep it simple. You know, what's good for what, what I say about deep nutrition is that it describes the, you know, the human diet because it's the one diet that no matter your age, no matter what condition you might have, no matter your race, um, it, it's going to help to follow this diet. It's good for everyone and everything. So if I could just go way back to the beginning to just talk about something that, uh, generally bothers me, but um, you said you basically didn't learn anything about nutrition in medical school or, or barely anything. Um, and I think this is a really important point. And actually, Kelly was um, a few years ago, I was just visiting my regular primary care physician and I came home totally frustrated because I felt like this person couldn't make any of the connections between why I wasn't feeling good. And, you know, they just couldn't make the connections. And, um, and you know, none, I, I wasn't sick per se, but I wasn't also well. And Kelly, said, Kelly made this point to me and he said, hey, look, you need to remember that your medical doctor is trained in sickness and not in health. And that actually, if you want nutrition, if you want advice on nutrition or lifestyle factors or anything to make you feel good and be more healthy, actually, your medical doctor is not the right person to go to in most cases. Um, and I know you wrote a book uh, specifically for physicians, probably in part to sort of combat this. But tell me a little bit about that. I mean, why, you know, is this changing in medical schools? Are physicians starting to learn more? Um, where are we? And if, you know, for people who are just going to see their primary care physician, should we just write them off as a source of information about our health, especially nutrition? Or is there sort of a changing trend here? So Mark Twain said, um, it's not what I don't know that's gotten me in trouble. It's what I know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> and, um, and that's exactly what happens to doctors when we get out of medical school. It gets us in trouble because it got me in trouble and it gets our patients in trouble. And um, fortunately though, there is a trend now where there's thanks to the web and um, you know, some, uh, some kind of like this underground network <laughs> of, of people who really want to get to the bottom of diseases. There are more doctors who go through this 
rebirth basically of um, recognizing that the information that we thought was fact is actually not true and detrimental and um, and opening our minds. Uh, the There was a, 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 a saying, um, I don't know if, it, if it's true or not, but like according to the, the young Pope, um, uh, God is a mind that opens. And I really like that uh, line in the, in the show because it's true. Once your mind opens, you, you have a whole new world that you've just been given an introduction to that was closed off to you. And, um, and so just realizing that there's more out there than what we learned in medical school um, is such a exciting thing for so many physicians, what, no matter their age, that um, there are, I think, probably thousands now of us um, who have come to the acceptance that, you know, there's more than what we learned and, and, you know, what we learned was wrong. And we're really, you know, excited about using the right and correct information <laughs> to help our patients. Um, and so a lot of them are involved in like low carb you know, low carb physicians, because really the the um, origin of all all evil in the nutrition world comes from the idea that um, fat is going to clog your arteries. So be, because before that hypothesis, um, doctors were recommending liver to their patients with um, anemia, and they were they were fighting against the um, introduction of pasteurized milk because we we knew that it would damage um, nutrients and they were fighting for raw milk from healthy cows. That was before World War II. And after World War II, I talk about it in my book, but there was a, a man named Ansel Keys who kind of um, made his bones on processed food, um, selling K rations to the military, K for Keys. So that was, you know, it was all about ego for him. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that was like the invention of processed food. And um, people don't make the connection between Ansel Keys, who pretty much invented processed food and a mass marketing for it, um, and um, and this so-called this diet heart hypothesis that he was the father of this idea that um, this turns out that was not just wrong, was great for the processed food industry and allowed the worst kinds of foods to be introduced en masse to an unsuspecting public who actually thought they were healthy. And, you know, what an odd coincidence though. It seems like a little naive that, you know, I didn't question this myself, um, so I'm guilty of it, but like, you know, that this food is cheaper too, right? Like, oh, the cheapest, crappiest fats out there, the margarines that are cheaper than butter, there's better for you than butter. Wow, what a miracle. <laughs> I guess, you know, teaching, you know, when, when there's this benefit, you know, for you in any way, you tend not to question it. And that unfortunately is what is still happening with a lot of medicine. Um, you know, there's there's doctors who don't mean to do evil, but they unfortunately are when they're telling people to cut their fats and take statins and, you know, not eat, you know, butter and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's um, it, it, it is bad, but it's, it's just, it's human nature, right? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to start a revolution and just getting back to the way things should be, which is the way they were before all of this, you know, profit centered everything. It's not just profit centered medicine, it's profit centered food. And that's really what creates the diseases that medicine sells drugs to, to uh, deal with.
You know, what's really frightening what this makes me think about is I was a division one rower at UC Berkeley um, as a young person. And that was like at the height of the fat-free diet craze. And so I often, we would do two a day practices, 5.30 to eight o'clock in the morning, and then 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. And I would finish my morning practice and I would drink a mocha and have a bagel with cream cheese. And then all day long, I would snack on red vines because they were fat-free. <laughs> and um, it's, I'm sure that I'm not alone in that, but you know, we would, uh, I look back and I think, man, you know, I was already, I think, Fortunately, I was young and I was able to buffer some of that a little better. But man, I just look at I look at it from a performance standpoint and think to myself, you know, wow, how much better could I have been and more athletic and more functional? And, you know, I won't go into it here, but I've had a lot of weird health problems that I think really um, were explained for me by reading your book. Um, but tell me a little bit about uh, just uh, continuing on with the other subject. Tell me a little bit about Food Rules, um, which is your book directed specifically for physicians. Yeah, so Food Rules is kind of the executive summary of deep nutrition. Um, they do complement each other. There's some, you know, the, the, uh, people ask me which one should I get, and of course I say both. <laughs> but um, but if you don't have a lot of time or um, you aren't really a big reader, um, then Food Rules is the book for you because you can polish it off in two hours. And people have told me that. You know, I read it on the beach in two hours. I went home and I. Um, redid my kitchen. I, I detoxified my kitchen and then I lost, you know, 40 pounds and I'm off my diabetes medication. So it does tell you, you know, what you need to know. And the, the, the premise of the book is that we're going to help you reduce your inflammation because the crux of what's bad about the modern diet is that it's pro-inflammatory and inflammation in the body. Um, you know, we, we intuitively can kind of sense it, yeah, that it's like, oh, I feel inflamed, something's puffy and swollen, your ankle will be um, very swollen when it's inflamed. But what it does and why it's bad is it disrupts everything about your cellular function. So it disrupts your genetic function, it disrupts the enzymes that would help you heal faster, it's, it disrupts the enzymes that help you burn fat or that help you switch over from, um, or it disrupts the enzymes that help you produce ketones, which are the form of fast fat that you know human beings are really supposed to be able to primarily be burning when we are um, exercising. And so um, the the first rule in the book is get away from the toxic oils because they are the most powerful promoters of inflammation in the American food supply, and, and people don't realize that they're eating them. Um, and, and the average American eats somewhere between 25 and 45% of their total daily calories from this stuff. Well, well, you know, if, um, if I could stop you right there, this is, uh, you know, the thing that really blew my mind about your book, you know, it, you talked about the four pillars of health, but I think you also did a very good job of talking about basically the two things that are horrible about the modern American diet. And sugar was the first one, which I, of course, knew, although you expanded upon my knowledge of that. Um, but the one that I literally had never heard of until I read your book was the vegetable oil. Well, we, we yeah. to, to, you know, we, we know coconut oil is great. We know right. avocado oil. We know, you know, there are, we have, we have access to amazing oils, but we, I don't think we realized how insidious. Yes some of the, the vegetables you're talking about, like sunflower oil, safflower. Yes. It's right? on everything. And, you know, we and found, sprayed everything. It sprayed everything. You know, we, we found these bespoke um, almond flour. We call them paleo Cheez-Its at Whole Foods. And we were like, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. And then after reading your book, we realized that they're covered in vegetable oil. 
Um, and so anyway, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I know you were on a path, but if you could just tell us why vegetable oil is, you know, the second evil of the modern American diet. It's a it's an industrial product, right? And so it is not food. It's non-food, and um, we are eating it about a thousand times more um, now than we did a hundred years ago when it was first when they could first synthesize the stuff. Um, so we're eating it in mass, and um, it's bad because it, it the molecules in there are called polyunsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fatty acids which we're talking about uh, you know, omega-3 is an example of a polyunsaturated fatty acid. Um, and so is omega-6. So both of them are um, polyunsaturates. And they are very unstable. In other words, they, um, they react quickly with other stuff. And they react particularly quickly with oxygen. And so during the refining of soy oil, I guess I should list the oils. The most common is soy. Second most common is canola. Palm is another one. Then there's also um, sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, and corn. Um, and so those are the vegetable oils, and they all are very high in polyunsaturates, and they are um, industrially refined, mass-produced, and um, doing so damages them in two big ways, with heat and with chemicals. So they're mangled um, completely by the time they're, they're, they make it into the bottle. Um, so, so what happens is you have mutated molecules now contaminating the, the original oil that um, was in the seed. So it's not that soy uh, beans or corn or sunflowers are bad for you. It's that when you process them this way, they become toxic. Um, and, and so we're talking about contamination levels around, you know, five to 10%. It, it depends on the bottle, depends how it's processed, depends on a lot of things, but um, of, of toxins. So these are real toxins, not like, you know, oh, it's just not that good for you. It's, it's carcinogens and um, molecules that are capable of killing cells and that if you add them to mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of your muscles that produce all the energy, um, they die. They kill them. So, um, and we're eating them. And not kill, killing the mitochondria is bad. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, I don't recommend it. <laughs> we need them. We can't see them, but we need them. Um, but, but uh, yeah. So we're not talking about like part per million concentration, which we, which is. What we're talking about when we talk about pesticides, which are bad. Yes, they're bad. We want to have organic food. But um, we're talking about and endocrine disruptors. Like, you know, there's all this buzz about uh, babies, male, male babies being born with deformities because of the endocrine disruptors, which are present in parts per million. These are present in percentage, which means parts per hundred. So that's about 10,000 times higher concentration. And they are as toxic. So... There's no wonder that we're seeing just an incredible explosion of serious diseases like cancer, where there was just a report. Every day I read a report that's like, well, okay, this is bad. Why isn't anybody talking about it? So strokes, there's now a much higher stroke rate in um, 30 to 50-year-old age range than ever before in history. Um, we're seeing lung cancers more and more in non-smokers. Breast cancer, of course, when I first went into um, medical school, the risk of the average woman was one in nine. Now it's one in seven. 
Um, so just everything is is getting going up, and then autism, which is just the terror most I think the most terrifying disease, that is is truly really increasing. It's it is being diagnosed more often, but it is also increasing. We just saw a report today on Politico that really was looking at Louisiana as a bellwether, but really talking about the the crazy increases and implications of the rising obesity rate. And what I what I hear you saying is that people may be trying to do the right thing. They may be trying to sleep more and exercise and eat better. Yet we have this sort of insidious handbrake that just disrupts the whole system. It makes them, not only makes the system more inefficient, but potentially damages the processing machines that make us and allow us to thrive. And then just by removing these things, we may see upticks in just function of the body. And it's that simple. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. It's a handbrake on all the efforts and all the work that you're doing. Um, there's only so far that it can get you if you don't also take these oils out of your diet and get a handle on your carbohydrate consumption. Because most people have, you know, eat more carbs than we realize as well. That's true. Well, and just to add one story, Kelly and I also just saw an article about three weeks ago in the New York Times about how colon cancer also has massively increased in like 20-year-old populations. And I was deep in the middle of reading your book, actually, when this article came out, and I was sort of apoplectic that at no point in the article did any of the experts they interviewed say, oh, maybe it's because this is like, you know, one of the first generations of kids that grew up eating chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese their whole life. And now we're seeing the ill effects of that. Um, and, and I would just like to turn on this and talk a little bit with you about kids, which is uh, one of my favorite subjects. And... Um, is that your daughter? That little, the adorable. The little one back there. Yeah, that's our little daughter. But we do um, some volunteer consulting with our kids' sports teams um, with a varying degree of success. Uh, but we, you know, we try to counsel parents and coaches and kids on sort of pre, during, and post-nutrition. And I'd love to hear what your recommendations are to the Lakers or other professional teams and sort of how you would spin that to be appropriate for kids and kids' sports. Yeah, so what we do with the Lakers is really we, we try to use uh, as many of the four pillars as possible. So we do give them, uh, they can actually do two on a regular basis. So they get fresh food and they get um, meat on the bone. They also do the sourcing of meat. So we, we try to get them to do um, grass-fed um, products as, as much as possible. Um, but the, And they love the bone stock, the chicken stock and beef stock. They love all the stuff that's made with that. But um, we, we also have really um, tried to get them to understand that sugar is not the perfect fuel for athletes as, as much as um, the sports dietitians <laughs> currently will insist that that is the case. Um, but um, the, the thing I wanted to mention about kids that is tricky now, like real kids, right? So the Lakers are like 18, <laughs> but um, kids in their, you know, under 10, there are so many food allergies now that um it's hard to it's harder to get kids to eat healthy because of that right there's more kids than ever that have serious peanut allergies but also that they, they just have intolerances that they don't do well that they you know will be unable to eat as much meat or protein as maybe they should because their digestive systems just don't work normally and this is a result, unfortunately, of being born into the experiment that we're all that began, and you know, after shortly after World War II, when we tried to produce and feed everybody the cheapest possible food, 
And so now children have been born into that experiment for several generations. And because of the epigenetic effects, it's magnified. And so it's, it's especially challenging for parents these days to, even with the best intentions, if you've got a six-year-old that just shakes their head when you give them anything but jello and chicken nuggets and those goldfish, which seems to be the, the, <laughs> the common denominators in all horrible <laughs> diets for children. Um, if, if, you know, if you're facing that, um, it's, it's really challenging. And there's a movie that hopefully will come out soon if it's not already out called The Magic Pill that I hope will inspire a lot of parents to just um, cold turkey it <laughs> with their kids and, and all these nasty, nasty foods because they show a child who is aut autistic nonverbal, she's five, and um, they take away her the goldfish and the Cheerios and all those things and give her real food, take away the vegetable oils, um, give her real bone stock, and she doesn't eat anything for five days and it's like killing them because you don't know when it's going to end. <laughs> and, and it's not easy when kids are unhappy. They make everyone miserable. And so at the end of the fifth day, she started eating the food that they presented her with like it was what she ate all her life. And by two weeks later, she said the word no. She was using a fork and she was making eye contact. And this was this was, you know, like, wow. So suddenly now she was like an almost a normal developing child, but she was just several years behind because her brain hadn't been given the raw materials and had been struggling with all those pro-inflammatory ingredients all those years. You know, one of the things that is, we always struggle with is, you know, when we hear things about um, dysfunction or disease, it's really difficult to make these correlations, right? Because the timeline is so long and the, and the systems are so complex and there's so much feedback mechanism, so many feedback mechanisms and systems are so tightly coupled that we can't see it. Right. And these are, this is complexity theory. This is expressed as, in, as normal accidents, right. Which is something we've talked about as our group that uh, these, some of these tertiary endpoint problems are just normal expressions of the way we're living and eating unless we change first principles. And, you know, we hear in physical therapy, well, there's no research that supports that poor posture causes pain, for example, right? Mm -hmm. But yet being a shrimp back, bent over person, what we say is really talks about, um, we don't want to talk about dysfunction, we want to talk about upregulations and function. And I think that's one of the, the nice messages about this is that it's not a doom and gloom book. It's a, hey, look, you're working really hard already and that there are these simple behavior, food quality choices that you can see affect the quality of your skin and improve your digestion. And you really are talking about the things that we're talking about. If you're in a better position, you can breathe more efficiently and you have more power and, and you're more efficient. And I think that's, you know, when I, when we read this and talk about this, it's not about, we should do this because we might get cancer. We read this, we should do this because we can be even better and it is easier to be better. It actually takes a lot less effort at revamping sort of the, the internal milieu of what's going on just by making these small changes. And I really appreciate that because it's difficult for us to, again, you know, say, hey, look, colon cancer, it's because you ate mac and cheese when you were three. You know, that's, that's very difficult. And that's why this notion of consilience is so important. And I really appreciate that you've taken this holistic global view of saying, hey, look, here are our ancestral traditions. Here's our best science. Here's the best genetics. 
and also, comma, look at what how the, the downstream implications of that. And, and that's what's really important if we're going to have apply science to the most important aspect of human beings, which is the humanities. Like that's it. We don't want pure science for science sake. We want pure science because it's got to improve the condition and the experience of the human being. And, and you really have nailed it with deep nutrition. Well, I thank you. Uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of different changes that are necessary, but also um, in deep nutrition, I do talk about, well, what is the first step, you know, to take and how can you identify what is the best first step for you? And for many people, it's just simply um, changing their breakfast because breakfast is the most important meal of the day, not to screw up. And um, we screw it up when we have, you know, box cereal and very starchy, sugary, sweet things that are loaded with the donuts and stuff like that. And if you just, you know, start focus on, okay, I don't want to make a million changes. I don't want to turn my life upside down, but I, I do want to have more energy by noon. Um, you just change your breakfast the way we recommend, um, you know, getting out the nasty fats. We have some, uh, good, simple, quick breakfast ideas, um, in there. And, uh, and you will notice most, almost everyone says that now that they know to pay attention to it, they've noticed that the days that they are the most tired are the days that they go back to having some kind of crappy breakfast on the way to work because they didn't have time. When we've seen that there's this been whole this intermittent fasting model that people are saying, hey, I skip breakfast. Well, maybe what we're really doing is we're skipping bad breakfast. Right. We're we're skipping standard American diet breakfast, you know, toast, cereal, juice, you know, gasoline and flares, which is really what that is. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting because when Juliet and I talk to all these all these communities and a lot of a lot of uh, people who are struggling to integrate all these practices, one of the things that we point out is. You know, and we've even taken hit on, you know, heat on the internet. People are like, breakfast, you're advocating for breakfast. Like, where's the science, bro? Bro science. But what we're seeing is that that's one of the places where you can control your day easily. And even if it's not about macronutrients, it can be really about micronutrients. Like, you can actually put good things in your body at home easily and not still blow your carbohydrate load, not eat a billion calories. I mean, Juliet's. We came back from uh, hanging out with one of our friends, Rick Rubin, who eats this magic pudding every day uh, for breakfast. And he, it's like his favorite meal. And it is, I, I mean, imagine taking liver paste and goji berries and, you know, and just all these beautiful fats and mixing them together. And Juliet was like, that's disgusting. I'm inspired. So Juliet really started, who wasn't a fan of breakfast, because when she ate standard American diet breakfast, she felt like crap, weird, one-to-one -one correlation. And, um, <laughs> But she did notice that when she ate a much denser, nutritious breakfast, you know, a food before she left the house that had some protein in it, you know, she got leaner, she got faster, you know, she became even more devastating. And that's a problem for me. <laughs> so uh, quick question for you. Um, you know, for me anyway, the challenge on the vegetable oil thing has been not at home because I'm easily able to control that. And we already ate very little of it as it was, but what do you do? What's your strategy for people who go out and are even considering the idea of trying to avoid vegetable oil? We actually love to eat out and that's been a challenge for us. Yeah. So, um, there are more and more restaurants, fortunately, that are um, going vegetable oil free and they, you can find them. Usually they're going to say something like farm to table because it usually is part of that whole, um, movement where they're conscious of these things. And um, even if uh, 
you know, you wouldn't necessarily think there's a connection between farm to table, but it, it's not, you're not safe just because you're spending more at a restaurant. When we were in Napa, some of the most expensive restaurants, unfortunately used a lot of the stuff, but um, you, 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 you really can ask and um, it, you have to ask because the they just don't put it on the menu right i mean they'll say gluten free and they'll say paleo and you know they'll say uh you know peanut free and stuff like this but they won't say vegetable oil free and so you just do have to ask but there are also like um so what you do is let's say you just it wasn't your choice you went out to a bunch of restaurants with friends you ask the server um, can they, you know, what kind of oil do they generally cook with? And she won't know. And you'll have to tell her, do, is it pure olive oil and butter or do they use a blend? Cause the blend is like the, the code word for, for vegetable oil, because they'll put in like a drop of vegetable oil, of, of olive oil and the rest of it will be vegetable oil. So they get to say, oh, it's an olive oil blend. So when I see duck fat fries. Know that I'm I'm in the clear there, basically. What you're yeah, you see dollar signs too, right? <laughs> well, we we you know we can't recommend hold hold the buck one more time. You know, for those of you who are interested in foundational, not gimmicky, not diet. I don't I didn't feel like this was a diet book. No, I felt like you, it was one of the first times that someone had. You know, we, we have good friends who are deep in nutrition, but this is one of the first times someone had said, "Hey, look, here are the primary principles." of what we are seeing is emergent practices, whole food, eating, raw milk, raw, right? The, the revolution of, of the leading edge, yet sort of writ large for the average person. And I really just appreciate that you keep a foot in performance and, and live in that world so you very much understand the demands of, of working, hardworking athletes and how they survive this and yet have given us principles and prescriptions to really make it easier for us not to screw up our daughter's diet you know, any more than we, you know, we tend to do, you know, uh, with our paleo goldfish addiction. So <laughs> you know, where can we, besides deep nutrition, where can we find out more about you? Are you on the interwebs? How do we find out more about uh, Kate Shanahan, MD? You can go to drkate.com and it's D-R-C-A-T-E.com. So um, Kate with a, a C, not a K. And I'm also on uh, Twitter. It's at Dr. Kate Shanahan. And Facebook, but if you go to my website, you'll it'll link to all that stuff. So it's D R C A T E. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so fun to talk to you. We could probably talk to you for another two hours um, and ask tons of questions, but um, I think we'll stop here. And we're just so grateful for you uh, sharing this amazing knowledge and information with us. And Julia and my pate addiction thanks you. Our guts <laughs> thank you. Our children, I mean, we owe we owe you so. Thank you so much, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again in person. Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait to visit you guys in person. <laughs>
Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it!